This is In Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of In Focus brings you in-depth analysis and perspective from a different corner of our global network of experts. Hello, and welcome to In Focus Sport from Control Risks Specialist Risk Consultancy. I'm Alicia Fitterman, an Associate Director in the Compliance, Forensics and Intelligence team here at Control Risks. In each In Focus Sport episode, my colleague, John Brown, the head of the forensics practice across Europe, Middle East and Africa, will sit down with a guest to discuss their views and insights on a range of current themes linked to the integrity of sports. In this episode, John sits down with Johnny Gray, the first chief executive of the Tennis Integrity Unit, an organization currently undergoing serious significant change. Johnny gives us some insight into their progress. Johnny, I'll start by saying thanks for joining us for the podcast today. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. So you're the first chief executive of the Tennis Integrity Unit. And for the listeners that aren't familiar with the TIU, it's the anti-corruption body that covers all of professional tennis around the world. Could you tell us a bit about your background and the journey towards you getting that role? I'm five months, I think it is, into being the first chief executive of the Tennis Integrity Unit, which is in itself going through change. I came from consulting to sport. And so this was, if you like, a fairly natural journey from consulting to sport to going over to the other side and working in the sports sector. So it's been interesting to cross that divide, but here I am now and thoroughly enjoying it. At the time that you were making the move, I remember discussing it with you and the role and the timing of taking it sounded, I guess, both fascinating and probably a bit terrifying in equal measure. And I think it's fair to say that the management of integrity risk in tennis is going through a period of quite significant change and your appointment, I suppose, is a part of that. Can you talk to us a bit about what's prompted that change process? Yes, you're right. Tennis is going through a period of very significant change in, in how it manages integrity risk. And I know integrity risk is something very close to the heart of control risks. And it really started with a review that was commissioned by the governing bodies of tennis in 2016, following really the growth of online betting and some of the corruption challenges that had emerged as a consequence of that. That review took about 18 months of very extremely thorough review, and it reported towards the end of 2018 and made some really far-reaching and comprehensive recommendations, over 200 recommendations about how tennis should move forward in terms of how it manages corruption risk in the sport. And you're right, my appointment is one of those recommendations which has been implemented now, and we're in a process of implementation going forward. I think over 200 recommendations, it's a lot of recommendations, your role being one of those. So how is tennis taking forward the other 199 recommendations? The recommendations obviously fit into different areas. One of the key ones, which I think would be interesting to control risk clients, will be about the governance of risk. And essentially, one of the key areas of recommendations is that the management of integrity risk in the sport, and indeed, shortly, the sort of anti-doping risks in the sport, should be managed by a neutral, independent agency which is, if you like, one step removed from the governance of the sport itself and therefore independent of the sport and the sport not able to influence decisions to, for example, prosecute coaches or players for either corruption or doping offences. And as you probably know, 
there have been some scandals, not so much in tennis, but in other sports where the sport perhaps was guilty of unduly influencing those sorts of decisions. So an independent supervisory board has been set up, nine members, five non-executives, four executives from the ATP, the ITF, the WTA and the Grand Slam board representing the seven funders who fund the organization which I lead, which is currently called the Tennis Integrity Unit. And that itself will also become, on the 1st of January, the International Tennis Integrity Agency, again, an independent body supervised by an independent board and charged to administer the Tennis Anti-Corruption Plan and the Tennis Anti-Doping Program on behalf of the sport. So quite complicated structural changes there which are an aspect of all the recommendations, but an important one. And in many ways, they've been fast-tracked in order to create the framework for implementing all the other things as well. You mentioned there that your Tennis Integrity Unit is about to become the International Tennis Integrity Agency from January of next year. Could you talk a bit about that and what's behind that decision? As I mentioned, a key aspect of the recommendations was this important concept of independence. And by forming an independent body with a legal personality, it allows that body to be the injured party, if you like, in disciplinary hearings or appeals to court arbitration of sport. It allows that body independently to decide against, if you like, a judgment of the standard of evidence which cases to prosecute, which cases to investigate, and so on, so that it removes any perception of possible interference in these sort of prosecutorial decisions, which all sports have been you know, roundly criticized for in the past, that you know there's favoritism or nepotism or undue influence in prosecutorial decisions or very high profile athletes or coaches have been allowed to get away with things uh, and so on. So, so this, if you like, this bundle of governance recommendations in the report removes all of that. And by January the 1st, we will be in that process. And obviously, as you understand, there's a lot of things that need to be put in place to establish a new legal entity and all the governance that goes with that. Beyond structural and governance issues, I guess, what are the other changes that are envisaged in the sport? Yeah, so I think some of the other key areas are about prevention. You know, tennis is an individual sport. There are lots of nuances in a game of tennis and in-play betting allows a wide range of outcomes to be bet on, not just the outcome of a match or a set, but the outcome of a particular point and so on. So one of the areas which we're trying to prevent is the ability for corruptors to corrupt the game, athletes, coaches, officials, and so on. And so there's a wide range of measures being taken around prevention. Those range from the obvious education and training of all players, coaches, athletes. My organization has a training unit. It's trained 25,000 people so far. Training is now mandatory in order to be in the professional game. But also things like removing data feeds from the lowest levels of the sport, so that uh, official betting is not possible. There are some other structural changes to sport. We've slightly removed some of the lower levels. So the entry level of sport now is a thing called the World Tennis Tour. And we've got about 4,000 athletes who are registered to play, of whom about 
2,000 odd participate at that level of the sport. And this is a long way from what some of your listeners may you know, think of. You turn on the telly and you've got Wimbledon or the US Open or the ATP finals. This is the entry level of the sport, thousands of games worldwide, games every day of the week. So all the time there's tennis going on, which people can bet on. And we're really trying to protect the sport, protect the players, restrict some access to the levels of the game that we can better control a lot of work going into credentializing, zoning at tournaments to prevent interaction between corruptors and players. There's a lot of work going into this over the next few years. I mentioned earlier on that the anti-doping program, tennis will come into the International Tennis Integrity Agency in due course, and that will give us the opportunity to align messaging and education, broader message around corruption, and align some of the investigations and forensic intelligence aspects around prevention as well. I always find the interplay between sport and betting to be a really, really interesting area. In relation to integrity units that the TIU is seeking to address, though, is it fair to say that your key focus really is on catching cheats? Absolutely. And I think it's very important to understand that tennis has zero tolerance for corruptors in the sport, be those outside the sport. And we've seen in recent years organized crime focusing on corrupting sport, not just tennis, but football and other sports as an easy form of revenue. So increasingly, we're cooperating with law enforcement agencies using new conventions such as the Macalin Convention signed last year by EU member states, which provides a framework for cooperation around match fixing in sport. So going after organized crime, make it more difficult for organized crime to penetrate the sport. And whilst protecting players and officials, coaches and so on, also making them absolutely clear that if they cross the line, we will have zero tolerance and we will seek the maximum penalties available to us, either through the criminal courts, Spain, for example, now maximum penalty for match fixing corruption in sport can be 10 years in prison. And certainly under the codes available to me, extremely significant sanctions up to and including life bans and very significant fines. We're all clear in the sport, in the betting industry, without integrity, there is no sport, there is no value. And tennis, as well as our partners in the betting industry and the data companies, absolutely committed to keeping the sport as clean as we physically can do. And as you'll appreciate, John, you know, in recent years, the advance of data uh, and the ability to analyze and use AI to analyze data to, to identify anomalous outcomes to gain, correlate with anomalous betting, you know, our ability to detect even the most subtle spot fixing is being markedly improved. So we're very confident that if people are cheating, we will catch them. And that's really important for people to understand. You came from the world of consulting, you, you set out at the start and you've moved into sport. Do you think being from that environment and a consulting background and not having been in sport gives you a slightly different perspective on things to others? Yes, I think it does. You have the fresh pair of eyes opportunity for a while at least. You're able to, if you like, see things at least at the sort of surface level, you're able to see things very clearly. Obviously, after a while, you get sucked into the detail and the human aspects and the human dynamics and why things work perhaps don't work the way they should do. But you do get a great perspective on seeing things. And, and having been a consultant, you will appreciate this, John. You know, you've you know one, one has the opportunity to work with lots of different organisations. Only towards the end of my time consulting, I focused on sport, and before that, you know, across all sectors. So you've seen 
what good looks like firsthand and you help people over the years try to get too good from wherever they start from. And so actually, because this is really a two to three year change management process, I would like to think that coming from consulting world, you're used to helping people manage through change. And therefore, that's been a distinct advantage. I suppose, you know, the downside is I just don't have decades of experience of tennis, you know, the real intricacies and nuance of that. But I'm surrounded by both within my organization and more generally the board and, and others, you know, vast range of people who, who have enormous experience in the sport. I was at a tournament just before the lockdown in Greece with the ITF's tournament director who sort of, if you like, flies in to oversee a tournament. This was in Crete, a chap called Sultan Ganji, who's, you know, 45 years in the sport, been a main chair umpire in Centre Court in Wimbledon, had John McEnroe calling him out. You know, so just an enormous amount of experience. And he very kindly spent a weekend just showing me all the different ways that competitions can be manipulated. So I've been really fortunate. The sport's really behind this, behind me, helping me. And I'm able to bring, if you like, that experience from other sports and from other sectors, which I think, you know, is a really good balance. It sounds like progress against those 200 recommendations. It's going to take some time, but five months in, you've made real progress already. I'd probably be remiss if I didn't ask you a question about COVID. The sport generally, it's caused incredible challenges. How's that panned out in tennis? You know, I I started this job in February. I have to say my first six months was not in any way what I was expecting. I think for the sport as a whole, it's a real challenge because I think people who understand tennis understand that it is an entirely, the professional game is entirely global. Players at the entry level, we did, we talked about the World Tennis Tour. I mean, the clue is in the title, you know, you go on, on the tour and you're on the tour for, you know, potentially 40 even more weeks of the year traveling around the world, competing in competitions. You could be in Europe one week. You could be in South America the next week, China the week after. And all the levels up the pyramid essentially are the same. I mean, if you're right at the top of the game, you know, the Andy Murrays, they are on the road a lot of the year. So that's very challenging when there are restrictions on travel. Clearly, we we face the same challenges that any sport does in terms of live audience participation. So it is a real challenge. During the hiatus, there were a number of private events where players can get together who live there, where the restrictions allow, they've been able to play, but not not professional tennis, i.e. define no ranking points. So it's essentially exhibition matches for fun. There have been betting on those. That has caused some issues, which we've been alive to, And now the sport's coming back. You know, you've got a lot of players. I talked about the number involved in the game who haven't been earning any income. They're vulnerable to corrupt approaches, more vulnerable than normal. Because of that, the the governing bodies of tennis, all of them have been making grants to players to, to try and help them through this period. We're on a sort of state of heightened alert to try and prevent and advise players and help them make smart decisions so they don't succumb to the undoubted temptations which will be there from corruptors outside the sport, also who have not had the same revenue flows seeking to manipulate outcomes to their advantage. We've seen in football a few similar sort of challenges, and I, I think all all sports are, are working through this. One thing's very positive is that 
the governing bodies of tennis and my organization, we've worked incredibly closely, groundbreaking sort of training and education, collaboration with the betting industry through the International Betting Integrity Agency, who have been a fantastic partner for us to really do all we can to manage the integrity challenges around the return of the sport. Thanks, Johnny. Always fascinating to talk with you. Unfortunately, we're running out of time now. So just wanted to say thanks for joining us. I'm sure people have enjoyed hearing what you've got to say. Well, thanks, John, and great to talk to you again. Joris have been advising through the ITF on some of the risk management challenges at the moment, and that advice has been fantastic. So great to sort of contribute back in some way to you and, and your listeners. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of In Focus, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe to our other podcasts as well, such as The Global Insight, our fortnightly panel discussion exploring the impact of the most pressing issues on global business. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we are helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.